I want the best parts of me to be witnessed in the lives of my children. I want them to represent me. And I'm not a perfect father. I'm an earthly father. Our heavenly father is nothing but good, nothing but perfect, nothing but holy. And his desire is that we might uh, be partakers in his holiness and be an example to the world of who he is. The pandemic of children being raised in fatherless homes has brought us to this moment in America history. The facts are heart-wrenching when we look at the statistics impacting children who do not have fathers in their lives. In today's message, Pastor Joplin preaches on the subject of fatherhood. I'm going to be dealing with a difficult topic, and that is what I would call the pandemic of fatherlessness in our country and um, the need for godly fathers to rise up. Um, at the same time, I want to cautiously and um, clearly recognize I'm preaching this morning to a bunch of fathers who cared to get up on Father's Day and get around and come to the house of God and worship God and hear the Word of God preached. And so I want to commend uh, you fathers for being here this morning. We are in a pandemic of fatherlessness in our country. And when we say, and it is the truth, in fact, it was said at uh, the 9 o'clock service this morning, that the problem with America, the problem with any nation for that matter, is sin. Right? It's not politics, it's sin, and we need to turn to God. And there is no clearer statement that could be made that so encompasses the real problem. It is my personal opinion that that problem leads to a handful of symptoms. And the worst and most impactful symptom of a people who turn away from God is the breakdown of the home. And it starts with the father. When we look at the chaos of the country that we live in, we look at it literally burning to the ground. One of the most overriding, unmentioned, and yet um, most impactful reasons that we are where we are is the breakdown of the home. It is the breakdown of fathers leading their children to grow up and become godly young men and women that are productive citizens in a society. And there is a part of me at times that is frustrated when I look at the um, ludicrous things that people do, the crimes that people commit, the, the hurtful things that people do um, happening now. There's, there's a part of me that looks at the people themselves, this younger generation that is a, often feels very entitled and, and is doing some of the crazy things we're seeing happen. I'm frustrated with them, but then there's a deeper issue, and that is the way they were or weren't raised. There is a constant theme of fathers not being in the home. Now, the text this morning brings us to a pretty um, significant chunk of Scripture that looks and deals with God from the Father perspective, and we're going to get there eventually. I want to first share with you some important truths about fatherlessness. 
You know, as people, one of the things we tend to do is um, compensate for deficits. And a lot of times we're just trying to be nice. We're just trying to say something kind, always trying to find the silver lining in a bad situation. And um, sometimes we say things that we don't really stop and think about. Uh, we'll, we'll try to find the silver lining in that somebody that's blind has better hearing. It's not really true. They don't have better hearing than you or I. It's not like when you go blind, all of a sudden your hearing gets better. Sometimes you've got to learn to tune into it because it's your only sense, but it doesn't actually improve scientifically. We say these types of things to try to compensate for what's wrong, and we look at the breakdown of the home, and I was a little nervous to preach this message this morning because it impacts so many people. You don't want to hurt people's feelings. You don't want to say things that make people um, ashamed, and that's not the goal of the message this morning. I promise you that. I actually have a very encouraging message. But we do need to look at the reality of what happens when fathers refuse to be fathers. It's a very real situation that is impacting our culture. And often we drape this kind of statement over divorce, broken homes, fathers that are inactive in the lives of their children, and and we point to the fact that children are resilient. Children survive. Be better for the kids if mom and dad were happy. See, I hesitate to say those things because all of us have family or maybe our very own who have had to make similar statements. And I promise you this morning, I'm, I'm not trying to make light of, of uh, painful situations. But often we say these things to make ourselves feel better and have a false sense of security about poor decisions that are made. Decades of research on dads, some of my research that I'm going to go through here come from fatherhood.gov, but decades of research show that families are better off and they do significantly better um, when the dad is present. A responsible father in the home promotes improved academic performance in school. Kids actually perform better in school with an active father in their life. Preschoolers. Preschoolers with active fathers in their life have stronger verbal skills. They learn to speak better and faster. Children with highly involved fathers show better self-control. Children who don't have involved fathers in their life. Now, what about a father who's not in the home but still involved? Keep in mind that the father can still be greatly involved in the life of his children, even if divorces happen. The National Center for Education um, reported that non-custodial fathers, so that's fathers that don't have the the custodial rights, but yet they're deeply involved in the lives of their children, um, still there were three huge impacting things in the lives of their kids that allowed them to be more successful. Their mothers were more educated. That's an interesting statistic. I don't know how it comes and works the way it is, but when the father was highly involved, didn't walk out on the home when things went wrong, was still involved in the mother's life, on average, the mother was more educated and uh, because of that was also able to produce more income. Dad's paying their child support and the custodial home consequently being more financially stable. These were all really positive impacts of families that though they were separated, the father was very involved in the lives of his children. And so there's 
good benefits. It's not just bad, but I want to talk about some of the bad things that happen. True statistics of when the father is not involved in the home. 63% of youth suicides involve fatherless homes. That's a rate at five times the national average. Five times the national average. Youth suicides without fathers in the home. 80% of rapists come from homes without fathers. Almost all, 90% of runaway and homeless kids are from fatherless homes. That's a number that's 32 times higher than the national average. Of all children displaying behavioral issues and disorders, 85% come from homes with no fathers. And our state-operated institutions, prisons, jails, youth homes, 70% of them, 7 out of 10, come from fatherless homes. Nearly three-quarters, not quite 75%, but 71% of students who drop out of high school come from fatherless homes. This is a big deal. It's a really big deal. And when you look at these statistics, what's heartbreaking about it is the percentage of children in fatherless homes is increasing. And I will submit to you that a huge reason that our country is in the position that it is currently, the culture is the way it is, is because of the breakdown of the home. And let me tell you something about the breakdown of the home. I don't care who you vote into the presidency. I don't care who you vote for into any position of office. They can't run your home. It starts with us. Who it starts with? So this morning, my heart is burdened because there is such a need for fathers. And my heart is burdened because there's, to a degree, fatherhood is something that's learned. You know, it's something that is learned. It is something that's meant to be modeled so that there's an example we can follow. And for so many, especially of our younger generation, they don't have that. And so we've got this generation of people growing up that don't even know how to be who they're supposed to be. This morning, I want us to look, and because this brings us back to Hebrews 12, I want us to look at this example of the perfect father and some lessons that we can learn this morning about fatherhood. And I want to end with a really positive time of prayer for all of you dads. You know, like I said, I'm preaching to a bunch of fathers that are here this morning, right? And so on one hand, I'm preaching to an incredibly great group of people. And I want to encourage you this morning and encourage you to keep doing what you're doing. And um, on the other hand, I do believe there needs to be a sense of burden amongst us to answer the question. And and I've got three really simple life application questions this morning on on, uh, this message and, and that is, what can we do to make better fathering happen at our home? What can we do to bring better fathering into our community? And what can we do to bring better fathering into our nation? That's it. Those are the three questions this morning that I kind of hope that our heart goes towards when we see the need. 
All right, let's get started. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. I've already read the text. Let's look at four lessons about fatherhood that we can learn from the perfect father. Number one, a good father compels his children to press forward. Now, I want to provide some background to what's going on in Hebrews chapter 12. You go back to Hebrews chapter 11, and you've got this great, it's called, as a matter of fact, it's called the, the um, Hall of Faith. And it is this chapter that records some of the greatest men and women of faith in all of the scriptures. And, and then in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, it tells us, you know, therefore, since we're surrounded by these people that, that were our heroes, many of them martyrs, we ought to be continuing on and we ought to be pressing on and we ought to be pushing forward. And, and, and then in verse 3, we started in verse 4, but in verse 3, it tells us to consider him, Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. He is encouraging them to keep pressing forward. You see, they were being um, depressed. They were being oppressed. They were enduring hardship. And consequently, some of them were thinking, is this really worth it? Is it really worth staying in the fight? Is it really worth standing for God? Is it really worth living righteously when everybody else seems to want to go the other way? And the good father is telling his sons and daughters, yes, it is worth it. You have to keep pressing forward. Take a moment and consider what Christ went through so that you could be saved. The good father compels his children, to keep pressing forward. In other words, we're preparing our children for war. This is war, brothers and sisters. There is a war on your soul. There is a war on the souls of your sons and daughters. This is war, and it's not easy. I fear, I don't know a better way to say this, and I'm not going to spend 30 seconds of your time trying to figure out a nice way to say what I was about to say. I'm just going to say it. I fear that we're raising a nation of wusses. That not only do we shelter our children from any type of hardship, we don't actually teach them how to endure it, how to face it. And when they do face it, instead of teaching them how to face it, we just try to pull them out. Let's take them here. Let's take them here. We kind of develop this mindset in our children that they should get anything they want, whenever they want, however they want. They don't have to work for anything. They don't have to do anything. They're never going to be punished for anything. I mean, the real punishment is just that you know we're disappointed in you. And then we wonder why they're burning cities to the ground. When we look at Hebrews chapter 12 and we see the heart of the Father, man, He is compelling His sons and His daughters to keep moving forward. 
He exhorts them to continue in patience and perseverance. Note the reminder that their sufferings were really not that severe when compared to Christ's. And not just Christ. When you keep in context Hebrews 11, the Father here is saying, hey, there's a lot of people that have had it worse than you. You're thinking about giving up? You're thinking about rolling over and quitting? You're thinking about calling it quits and taking the easy route? There's a lot of people that have endured a whole lot worse than you've ever had to endure. And there's this sense of almost shame that you would think about giving up when you look at all that they went through and all that they endured. The Father's compelling us to press forward. Our God is a warrior. Jesus is the Lion of Judah who defeated death, hell, and the grave. He took the keys of Haiti and He's coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords. Our God is a warrior. And there does need to be this degree of warrior spirit that rises up in God's children that says we will live for God. We will not move to the left. We will not move to the right. And we will endure hardship if we must endure hardship, but we won't cave. Now I want to notice something really, really, really important. In verse 4, in your struggle against, what do we struggle against? The Democrats. Nope. In your struggle against the Republicans. Nope. In your struggle against whatever nation you're a part of. Nope. What do we struggle against? Sin. You want to know the worst enemy you will ever face. It is the flesh nature within your own heart and soul. That's your enemy. That is what seeks to destroy you and turn your heart from God and taint your mind and taint your soul. We struggle and war and battle against sin. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers that ultimately are tempting us to sin. This is what we are striving against. Notice the good father here in his compelling of his children to press forward. He does acknowledge they have suffered. He's not saying they haven't suffered. He's not saying what they're going through isn't hard. He's not diminishing what they've gone through. I mean, this is war, and sometimes war is really, really hard. You struggle against sin, and what's he say? Listen, you're struggling against it. You're not struggling against it to the point of death like others have. Years ago, this verse, I began to see it a different way, and I can't prove one way or the other, but I'm going to tell you something about this verse that I've wondered. I've wondered if it's a reference to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was so burdened and didn't want to endure what he had to endure, he asked his father three times if God would change his mind. Three times if he wouldn't have to go. And the Bible says that his sweat became as great drops of blood. I've wondered if this is a reference to that. Jesus literally resisting the temptation, because he was tempted in all ways like we were, yet without sin. 
He resisted the temptation to say no to God and just do it his way. He resisted that to the point that he literally, his, his sweat became drops of blood. I've tried to picture in my mind that type of resisting temptation because I'll be the first to, to tell you honestly, I've never even come close to resisting sin. I give in a long ways before that. Not like Jesus did. I've never, I've never resisted sin to the point of shedding my blood. Wish I could say I did. Wish I could say I, I, I would. All I can tell you is 20 years of serving the Lord, I haven't. And we're told, listen, I know what you do. It's, it's, you're suffering. Hebrews. We're not pretending that, you, you, you know, there's no reason here to be concerned. But... You have got to dig deep and think about those who have gone on before you. You've got to think about what Jesus did so that you could be saved. Look at the cross. Look at what He endured. Look at what He went through so that you could be forgiven and redeemed, so that you could come into a right standing with God. And the good Father is compelling His children. Don't give up. I'm going to tell you something, brothers and sisters, in just a very real applicable sense. Our children need us to be compelling them to not give up especially in the context of the Bible and what we're talking about this morning on their faith, on standing for what is right when most of their peers aren't, on living a life that is honorable to God and speaking with speech that is honorable to God and treating people in a way that is honorable to God in all that we do, honoring God with our lives. We need to be compelling them. Number two, the last thing I want to say before getting to number two is that this spiritual warfare that we're in, not only is it honorable, but it's necessary. It is an honorable thing that we've been called to, but it's necessary. The reality is we're only defending ourselves against that which would destroy us. That's why you need to fight against sin, not just because it's honorable, not just because it's the thing that honors God and the Bible tells us to do. I'll tell you why you need to fight against sin. Because it will protect you. That's why. Because it will destroy you if you don't fight against the sin in your own life. Our warfare is a very honorable warfare, but it is absolutely necessary. Number two, a good father leads his children into progressive strength. A good father will lead his children into progressive strength. There's a certain word that absolutely thrills my heart in this verse. In verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet. I spent a lot of time on this verse yesterday because I wanted to make sure the word was actually supposed to be there. Sometimes we make a big deal about words and English translations that were never actually there in the real one. This word is there. It's there. That's why you'll find it in almost every single English translation. It's actually there. You have not resisted. It doesn't say you're not going to. Yet. I love it. We see the heart of this father here is one who is preparing his children, preparing his sons, preparing his daughters with lesser battles. They've been through battles, but there's greater ones to come. 
Can I share my heart this morning? Don't really matter if you want me to or not. I got the stage. <laughs> we must be preparing our children for greater battles. Amen. Now, um, this is not a statement on homeschool, private school, public school. That's not what this is about. So please, if that's where your mind goes, tune it off and try to pull yourself back in to the heart of what I'm about to say. We need to be raising our sons and daughters so that when they're 18, 19, 20 years old, they're actually able to walk into the world and defend themselves. That's what we need to be doing. And as fathers... Mothers as well, but I, fathers, especially when it comes to protecting and fighting, this is our job. It's our job to teach. It's our job to lead. We need to be teaching our children how to grow into, you know, it's like, hey, you, you haven't had to deal with this yet, right? Not yet. You've got some struggles, but there's coming a time when a greater struggle will come, and you need to be prepared for that. And we progressively need to be preparing our children for that. And one of the things that I just think we fail at is when we look out at the world and it's like, oh, it's so bad, it's so terrible. Let's just hide in the cave, kids. Hide in the cave of the church. Hide in the cave of our small group and our small family and our small little world. And then we wonder why they, are, they run off and they're crazy when they leave the house. Nobody ever taught them progressively how to grow in strength. We just thought we could shelter them their whole lives from the world. And it turns out you can if you're going to let them live there until they're 70 and they want to. But if that's not the case, eventually they're going to have to go out on their own. And a good father, a good father, trains his children for war. He progressively helps them with strength. And I've already said, this isn't about homeschool or public school. I don't care what you do. What matters is that whatever you do, you find ways to train your children how to become progressively strong. There are times that they need to face battle. You know, if I'm going to send somebody um, out into real war, physical war, I mean, their life is on the line and other people's life is on the line. I want to make sure they've had a couple of tests before. You know, I want, I want to make sure they've been through some training. I want to make sure they've pulled the trigger before. I, I, don't, I just want to talk about it in theory and then, poof, send them off to real battle. There is this preparation process, and it requires testing. I can't tell you what your testing should look like. I can't tell you exactly how. All I can tell you is that the father, a good father, he does, he leads his children into progressive strength. Brothers and sisters, we need to be doing this. I can't think of any better time than in the home. If I want my children to learn how to stand strong in the face of temptation and how to stand strong in the face of people pushing them the wrong direction, there's going to be times that, that it'd be better for me to, to, to help in that process while they're still in the home instead of sheltering them from every temptation, every little thing they ever go through, and then throwing them out into it. You have not yet. It's coming. And I'm preparing you for it. 
On one hand, I want you to note that the father does not keep his children from all trials and difficulty. Notice that. God has all the power in the world. There is nothing that He cannot do. Nothing. And yet, the father does not keep his children from trials and difficulties. We learn later part of the reason for that is that these trials actually produce character and character patience and that there are certain products that come as a result of going through trials. So on one hand, the father doesn't keep trials from his children, but notice on the other hand, he is, uh, what's the word I would look for? Cautious, um, careful, and compassionate to the degree at which he allows his children to go through temptations. They weren't ready yet for some of the stuff they were going to go. They weren't ready yet for these trials, but he's preparing them for that. Notice the tools the father uses. Here, the clear implication all the way going back from the later verses of chapter 11 is persecution. It's being treated wrong for being a Christian. And on one hand, where it would look like the enemies and our persecutors are, you know, somehow inflicting suffering and harm on us, when we look at it from God's perspective, they're really just divine chastisements. They are really just divine ways of Him improving upon us and making us stronger and preparing us for more. The afflictions, which might be true persecutions, as far as men are concerned, are in some ways fatherly rebukes or at least fatherly trials to help us grow strong. And when I see this, you know what I see? I see that God is in control in ways so much stronger than we ever really thought. I was driving home Friday. Uh, my family and I were able to get away for the week and just kind of decompress. And I was driving home, and I don't even know, I wasn't even sure what I was preaching this week. I was thinking on it, meditating on it, and this thought came to me about the sovereignty of God. And then it was mentioned this morning in the 9 a.m. service. And the fact is, God is in control. I mean, He is in control in ways we have no clue about. Sometimes God gives us a little insight to what He's doing and how He's working in an area or Maybe he doesn't even show you how he's working, but he kind of just gives you peace in your heart that he is at work. But I was thinking about the multitudes of times we have no idea what God is doing. We're not even mildly conscious of it. And yet he is at work caring for his sons and his daughters. And it's like the intricate ways that he is involved in our lives. We would be mind blown if God would just for a moment, open our mind to see everything He's doing to be involved in our lives. And when it would seem like all is wrong, when it would seem like they're suffering persecutions and it's not fair what they're going through and all of it's just not good, God reminds them, wait a second, I'm actually in control of all of this. And what they meant for evil, I mean for good. And what they thought was going to bring you down, I'm going to use it to bring you up. What they thought was going to make you weaker and make you give up, I'm going to use it to make you stronger so that you can endure more. And 
God is at work at all times. Number three, third lesson we learned this morning is that a good father disciplines his children with love. A good father disciplines his children with love. You know, we have to recapture the meaning of love. We've lost sight of what love is in our culture. It's been said that if you can hijack a language, you can hijack the people. If we can change what love means and say it a million different ways a million different times and say that love is just some meaningless feeling that you just passes this direction one day and this day another, and all of a sudden it doesn't mean much that God loves you. We have to recapture the meaning of love. We're living in a culture where love supposedly means you don't ever discipline. I've heard people say, I don't discipline my child because I love them. Well, according to God, you hate them. And he's right and you're wrong. And now you're mad. So, I mean, we have to recapture the meaning of love. God loves his sons and daughters, and that's what this whole text really is about, is that the whole reason, the whole motive, the heartbeat behind it is God loves you. When God disciplines us, it might be because he is displeased. I mean, that's really the real reason a good father would ever discipline because he was truly displeased. Something was wrong. Something was amiss. Yet, it proves his fatherly love. And that's what the author here is trying to tell the church, that when these things go on, when God disciplines you, you need to see it's because He loves you. He cares too much for you to let you run off a cliff and die in hell. He cares too much for you to let you turn the other way and go destroy your life without doing everything in His power to discipline you and turn you back on the right path. Whom the Lord loves, He chastens. And the best of God's children need disciplined. We all have our faults. We all have our failures. We all have our times where we just fall. We all of us have our times when God must discipline us. But it's proof that He loves us. And fathers... We have got to do the hard work of being willing to discipline our children with love. I can't stress the word with love enough because that it makes all the difference in the world. You got to do it with love. But discipline's never fun. And this is really our role. My heart breaks for the women that have to take on that role. It's not fair. You weren't designed to do it. Your children end up despising you for doing it. It's a bad deal. 
I've watched in our own home um, that just the dynamic, the difference between male and female. That it does not matter how right the situation is and need for discipline. My wife never likes it when I discipline our kids, ever. Even when she wants me to do it. She knows they need it, but then I do it, and she's just sad, you know? (laughs) The woman generally is the protector, the nurturer. And fathers, we have got to step up to the plate and be willing to discipline and love because the whole purpose is correction. That's a good word for it. Discipline is about correction. It's not about shame. It's not about making somebody feel small. It's not about hurting somebody. It's about correction. We got off the course, and we need to get you back on the course so that we can end up at the right goal, at the right place in life that we're trying to get. And the truth is, it's not always fun. I don't think God likes it when He has to discipline us. I think it's one of the worst parts of being a father. But I'd be a coward if I didn't do it. I couldn't really argue that I loved my children truly completely and fully loved them. If I didn't step in and say, whoa, we're off course, we got to get back on. Wouldn't be love at all. Just be this cowardice way of letting my children go off to their own destruction. It's the opposite of love. No wonder God says the father who doesn't discipline his child hates his child. Yes, God says that. Proverbs. It's not a paraphrase. I'm not making it up. That is an actual scripture. You see, while God might let others go off in their sin, He won't let His children. In fact, it's one of the works of the Holy Spirit to reprove us of sin. No wise and good father will wink at the faults of his own children as he might in others. Because he loves his children. It's just the way it is as a father. You know, there are two reasons that we don't typically discipline other people's kids. And and I'm not saying there's never a role for um, community together. I mean, if my kids are acting up, you can thump them. Just don't tell their mom or you'll get in trouble. (laughs) But there are two reasons. Number one, Uh, To a great degree, we don't have authority with someone else's children. I was at the beach this week and witnessed uh, something that I will not forget for years. It was, uh, we had a great experience as a family. We went down to Galveston to get away, but there was one thing that just ingrained in my mind, and it was this family, large family, uh, many kids. I'm not trying to be mean-spirited, but this is just God's honest truth. I'm convinced they had three or four different dads. And none of their fathers were in their lives. And uh, there was a boy that was probably six, had to have a helmet on, handicapped. And uh, his brothers and sisters just picked on him, threw him down, kicked water in his face, all laughed. While the mom sat over there, did absolutely nothing about it. And the oldest sister was sitting there filming it all. And I was really conflicted. Conflicted for a lot of reasons, obviously. But the thing I was most conflicted about is I knew that since it was family, doing it to family, there wasn't really anything that I could do. That this, this is the way this family treated each other. 
I was shocked, truly appalled. My kids were appalled. Everybody else on the beach was appalled. It was unbelievable to watch people treat people that way, their own family. It's not natural. Something's wrong there. And there was that moment that it was like, it had been one thing if the mom wasn't there. But right there was the responsible parent sitting there watching it, doing nothing about it. Unbelievable. I find myself conflicted some. What should I have done? What could I have done? To make matters worse, it was a uh, group of people that were a different color than I. And I was 100% convinced had I said a word in that moment right there, I would have been called out as a racist. And my question was, can I actually de-escalate this problem? Can I make anything better? Is it possible to help? It was a very difficult situation, but my point in sharing that is, I never would allow that to happen with my kids. And even though I was deeply burdened by it, you know why I handled it differently than I would with my kids? Because they're not my kids. And then the second reason that we often deal with our children differently is simply because, or don't deal with other people's children the same way, is just because we don't love them the same way we love ours. You can kind of wink at, you know, I, I can wink and laugh at your kid's stupidness. <laughs> oh, that's so cute. Aren't kids the darndest? They just do the craziest things. Oh, they're so cute when they're little. Uh, but not in my home, right? I'm going to deal with my kids a little different than I deal with yours. It can be cute with your kids, but it ain't going to be cute with mine. We just deal with the kids differently. Now, here's the point I want you to see, though. That's also the way God deals with his own sons and daughters. Yeah, he might wink or turn the other way or, or not necessarily discipline and deal with and bring conviction and discipline to the, the sinners of the world, but he will with his own sons and daughters. And when you find yourself as a true blood-bought, born-again child of God, and God is eating you up for your sin, you need to know it's not because he just wants to shame you. It's because he loves you. And He is your Father. And the proof that He loves you and the proof that He is your Father is that He's willing to discipline you. One real quick side note. The apostle here um, commends children who gave respect to their earthly fathers. We gave them reverence. We gave them honor. And there needs to be a respect for parents. We live in this weird, crazy time when parents don't going to be parents anymore. I saw an article the other day where a parent, set of parents actually decided to let their three-year-old choose their gender. That's just stupid. And I'm not even making a statement on gender issues right now. I'm making a statement on a three-year-old somehow having the right to make those types of choices. That's stupid. I mean, scientifically, 
psychologically, that's stupid. You can't allow three-year-olds to make those types of decisions, and it's like the three-year-old is the parent. Like Mommy and Daddy are just like, so what's the truth, son? How are we going to live in our home? It's absurd. Psychotic. We need to reverence our parents, and we need parents to be parents. Final uh, note on this number three about a good father that disciplines his children with love. I want you to notice it's always for our profit. Notice in verse 10, uh, our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us, look at this, for our good. It's always for our profit. And what is the goal? that we may share in His holiness. God intends for us to be partakers in His holiness. That is awesome. Brothers and sisters, our God is the eternal, always existing, all-powerful Creator God. He's holy beyond our ability to understand holy. The Bible teaches us that the angels that tend to him, they cry out, holy, 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 nonstop. It's like all that they can cry out. And not only do they cry, I mean, just think about the angels for a moment that are doing it. It's just the way my mind thinks. Improving here a little bit, but it is the way my mind thinks. They have to be pretty special angels to get that job. They have to be good, great perfect creation of angels to have that job that constantly tend to God. The Bible teaches us that they have wings that cover everything up in the presence of God. That's just mind-blowing to me. His glory. We're studying, we're studying Isaiah right now, and in the second chapter of Isaiah, as we've learned already, this theme of majesty starts to come out. And one thing that's always tied to this majesty of God is the terror of God. And it's like He is so awesome, so powerful, so bright, so anything different than we've ever seen, that simply being in His majestic presence is so overwhelming, it's terrifying. This is the holiness of our God. And we see that He disciplines us. Why? That we might be partakers in His holiness. God wants us to be like Him. That's incredible. So His discipline is always for our profit. It's to correct and cure the sinful disorders in us. It's to preserve us and protect us from harm. It's to improve and increase the things in us that represent Him and that glorify Him. You know, I want all of my children to be unique. Every father could say the same. Every mother could say the same. I, I, I want my children to be unique, and I work to let them each be their own person. But there's a part of me that wants a little part of me to be represented in every one of them. 
I want you to be able to learn something about me by examining my children. I want the best parts of me, the most successful parts of me, the, the, the most honorable parts of me, the most important things in my life to be witnessed in the lives of my children. I want them to represent me. And I'm not a perfect father. I'm an earthly father. Our heavenly father is nothing but good, nothing but perfect, nothing but holy. And his desire is that we might uh, be partakers in his holiness and be an example to the world of who he is. So he does what he does for our prophet. Number four this morning, and I'm done. A good father is an example for his children to follow. Notice he is making us like he is. God has led the way. He's not merely commanding us to live a certain way that he hasn't done. And in reality, he sent his son. I want to get confusing and switch from the father to the son, but God sent his son to be a literal example for us. And this is what we need. We need fathers who are examples. Fathers that don't simply say, point and do. Do as I say, not as I do. We need fathers that are examples for their children to watch and follow. And here's the truth, whether you like it or not, that's typically what your children are going to do anyways. They're going to follow the example that's before them. That's just what, what they do. When they're little, they'll do what you tell them to. When they get a little older, generally speaking, they follow the example that's before them. And if they had a dad their whole life that had no interest for the things of God, lived an entirely different way outside the church than he lives in the church, and, and is, is, you watch sons and daughters grow up to be very similar. We need fathers like our Heavenly Father who are examples to follow. I want to insert an important point here, and that is that so what do we do? Let's, let's wrap this up. I want to wrap this up because I'm, I've got a lot more to say and not the time to do it. So let's wrap this up. So what do we do? What should be the response of the church? When we look at a, a culture of, um, in a lot of ways, fatherless kids, and sometimes they might have fathers that are just not involved. What do we do? Well, obviously, it starts in our own home. That's where, that's where you got to start. you got to start in your own home. Dad, you've got to be involved in the lives of your children. You've got to be a father that is leading by an example. You've got to be progressively helping your children move towards strength. Uh, you, you can't shelter them from all trials. We've got to start in our own home. But I, I take um, for granted, maybe, and just assume that most of you fathers here are doing that this morning, and that's why you're the father type of father that showed up on Father's Day to worship God. But what about the rest of our culture that doesn't really have that? And here's the challenge this morning. We need to begin praying for our culture, praying for families, praying for fathers, and we need some of us men to find ways to be involved in the lives of children in the community. You can't be everybody's father. That's not the goal. That's not what I'm talking about. But trust me, when, when, it, when a young person has no male role model in their life to follow, sometimes just being a coach can be one of the most important things that you can do. 
Sometimes being willing to, you know, pick up your, some neighbors and bring them to church or, or, or finding a way to be involved in the community so that these young people have examples to look to. We are to be in the world, just not of it. We can't remove ourselves from it. It's a dark place. What, are we going to take all the lamps and go hide them in a room together? That's insane. No. Go burn brightly. Go shed the light and share the love of Christ. And you know what I've found? I've, I've, I've just found it over 20 years. That normally, and this is just my experience, I've got a two to three year window with, with most kids that are not my own. It's about, all, it's about the longest it's ever been. They just seem to come and go in that, that realm. It's just the way friends are a lot of times, the way life is a lot of times. But I'll find that I've got a two to three year window, whether I'm coaching soccer team. A few years back, Andrea and I used to feed anybody that'd come over to the house on Wednesday night if they'd come to youth group. She'd make food for, feed 30 kids, and we'd end up with a bunch of football players that could eat for five apiece, and we'd feed about six of them. Every Wednesday. About a year and a half. I don't see him much anymore. But I am totally convinced we made a dent. We made an impact. We planted some seeds. We did more than just feed them. We really did. We talked with these kids. Our house wasn't always the gospel house. You didn't have to have a great big long conversation with the preacher about the Bible every time he came into my home. But I did wait for the right opportunity and prayed for the right opportunity to have meaningful conversations with these kids who a lot of them weren't getting the meaningful conversations they needed at home. That's what I'm talking about when I say we got to look for ways, fathers, to be examples in the community.